I'm going to read our text for this evening, so if you turn with me to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, starting in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Well, as always, it's an honor to uh, stand before you tonight and open God's Word with you here at Sovereign Grace. And tonight I have a special privilege allowed to me by uh, Elder Greg Wren of Texas. He has asked me to, uh, to preach a message for the saints that are participating in the Sovereign Grace Bible Conference coming up here at the end of the month. And uh, I want to ask the Lord to bless this time as we, together with them, rejoice in the truth. So if you would, pray with me and for me that the Lord would work through my weakness to uh, fill you with the knowledge and wisdom of Christ and that He would be glorified through all that's said. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the work of Christ that we see so clearly revealed to us that we can rejoice in and rest in and know that we will be secured in. So pray, God, help us. Let us understand and perceive the truth that we see here and let it shape our hearts and minds and ultimately let it glorify Christ, I pray, in Jesus' name. Now, before I get into the text that was just read to you and begin to actually focus in on the topic that I want to look at tonight, which is the supremacy of Christ's reconciling work, before I get into that... I want to make kind of a a comment or two that might prove helpful, I think, in setting up the context of Colossians 1, 19 to 22, which is what I'll be covering. I was thinking about the the context of what was going on here, and I was thinking about some things that we see going on in our world around us and the need for reconciliation, obviously. And I would say that the last four years have proven to be very interesting to us as Americans, has it not? We live in a time period that is marked out by deep division. We see people today even trying to divide over what it means to be a real American. 
Some tell us that if we don't follow their political party, we're not real Americans. And then others say that if we don't reject all political parties, we're not real Americans. It's simpler than that, folks. The reality is this. It's not a matter of opinion that makes you an American or a matter of political conviction that makes you American. Legally speaking, if you're born in this country, you are an American. End of story. And in here, even in America, we have a way for those who weren't born here to become American citizens. And this is going to be important to the context of what we're dealing with in Colossians. In, in, in our country, we have an ability to take someone who's an illegal alien and help them become American citizens. But they have to be willing to go through the legal process of naturalization. In the process of naturalization uh, in America, a person must do a few things before they can become a true American if they're an illegal alien. They have to first fill out an application. Then they have to get fingerprinted. Then they have to provide documentation They have to be interviewed twice, and then they must take the oath of citizenship. If you go through this entire process, you are now an American citizen. Now, I point that out because that's how many people approach salvation and sanctification. They think of it as a process. They they see it as a process that men must work at in order to gain or maintain God's acceptance and pleasure. But that's, that's not the way we enter the kingdom of God. That's not how we get in. It's not through a process. It's through a divine declaration that's secured by Christ's reconciliation, by his work. But this is the kind of error that Paul was dealing with at Colossae. The false teachers here were trying to convince these Colossian believers that if they wanted to become truly heavenly citizens, they they need to listen to what they're telling them as far as following their rules and their rituals and their mandates. This is the process you have to go through to be a true citizen of heaven or to be truly sanctified as citizens of heaven. You had to go through this process of man-made rituals and regulations to be accepted into God's kingdom. And so in the text here before us, in 19 to 22, the Apostle Paul corrects that error. And he tells us here that our spiritual naturalization is not a process. Our spiritual naturalization comes through Christ's incarnate and legal reconciliation. It is a judicial declaration granted by God, secured by faith in Christ and His completed work. It is not based on our works or our effort. It is based all on Christ and Christ alone. In this passage here tonight, Paul Paul's emphasizing that, that only Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice can unite sinners to a holy God. Obedience to regulations and rules or, or trying to trust in your good deeds will not reconcile you to a holy God. The gulf and enmity between man and God is, is too great for that. That gulf can only be bridged by God himself. And that's what he's pointing out in the text. That's what he wants us to be reminded of when we look at verses 19 to 22. Let me read that again to you. For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is what I want us to really focus in on tonight and think about. 
he's, he's wanting to remind us of some very important things, and he wants us to learn some very important lessons about what Christ has done and what that work will accomplish in us. He wants us to see the supremacy of Christ's reconciling work. And so in verse 21, I'll give you a little outline. In verse 21, we learn the reason reconciliation with God was needed. In verse 22a, we learn how reconciliation with God was accomplished. And then lastly, in verse 22b, we learn why reconciliation was granted. Let's look at the first one here in verse 21. In verse 21, we learn the reason our reconciliation with God was needed. He says it very clearly. It's very plain before our eyes. You once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now, when you combine what this verse says with other texts in the book of Colossians, you will see something very, very illuminating. Look at 1.13 as it describes really more about why we need, the reason we need God's reconciling grace. Look at 1.13a. Speaking of Jesus, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's the citizenship we had before Christ came to save us. We lived in darkness. Look at chapter 2, verse 13a. And you were dead, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the filthiness of your sin, he's saying. He's saying, Here, here's why you need reconciliation. You were once citizens of a dark domain. You were cut off from God, alienated. You were hostile to God and you were offenders of God. That sums up the condition that we lived in apart from Christ and why we needed his reconciling grace. Listen, folks, when you read this and we, we know this well, I know that as, as people who love reformed theology, we, we know how depraved man truly is. We are infectiously depraved, radically depraved. We are spiritually alienated from God, but we need to be amazed at, at how deep the gulf was that we came out of, that God bridged and brought us His grace and His mercy and the blood that atoned for us. We were spiritually alienated from God due to our infectious nature that we had within us of sin. Our hearts, our minds, and our actions were all defiled. We were enslaved by our sins. And he goes on there in 2.13 to say we were dead in sin. It can't get any worse. And if that's the case, if this is the nature of man, we can't change our condition. And one of the things we know about that is we don't even want to change our condition until God's grace intervenes. We are dead spiritually to God. But Ephesians 2, 4 tells us that God, who is rich in mercy, did something. He did what only he could do. He granted a perfect substitute to take our place and rescue us from ourselves and from God's wrath to come. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tell us how he did that. God the Son took on flesh. It says here that God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when you come back to Colossians 1, 19 to 21, we see this fleshed out. We see who came to save us. We see why we needed to be saved, why we needed to be reconciled to God. We were beyond hope in this world apart from Christ. But God the Son took on flesh to reconcile us because we cannot reconcile ourselves. And here's why. When you think about the terms that he uses in 121, right? We were alienated. We were hostile. We were evil in our deeds. 
Our, our, our love for sin alienated us from God. But Christ's love for God set Him apart from sin. Our minds pursued sin rather than God's will, but, but Christ pursued God's will rather than sin. Our deeds deserve God's wrath, and Christ's deeds deserve God's reward. Yet He took God's wrath for us in our place. It makes me think of the old song, How can it be that Thou, my God, should die for me? This is amazing. And when you see how wretched we were apart from Christ's reconciling work, you see the reason we needed this great, this great reconciliation. And we see that the reason we received it is because Christ took on flesh. He became incarnate. Now, there in verse 22a in Colossians, we learn how our reconciliation was legally accomplished. And I really like the, the words that Paul was inspired to use here. In verse 21, he says, We were once alienated and hostile sinners. But then he's going to say in verse 22 that now, now we are reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. The past is now eradicated by the present work of Christ. We are reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. That's the only way that alienated citizens can ever be reconciled as citizens of the kingdom of God. This is the only way that we can become a citizen in God's kingdom. Our our alienated hearts and our hostile minds and our evil deeds deserve God's wrath. But instead of giving us what we deserve, He's reminding us again and again that God the Son took on flesh to die in our place and satisfy God's holy justice. And He did that so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this should still totally consume your mind with amazement when you hear this. Let us not become so familiar with the radical nature of our reconciliation that we actually overlook these texts and overlook this revelation that God's giving us to humble us and amaze us and fill us with great hope. In Colossians 2.14, we see how he accomplished this reconciliation. Look at 2.14, speaking of Jesus and what happened to him. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sin debt was laid upon him. It was nailed upon him, if you will. He received it in our place. And if that's not enough to amaze us, let's think about Not only how he accomplished this work by taking our place. Let's think about what his incarnate work has promised us in this reconciliation. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, it's sola fide. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His full favor, His grace, this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be completed or saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Look at, look at what we receive through Christ's work. Look at the promises we have. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We have hope in God. We have justification in God. We have all these things given to us through what Christ accomplished in our place. This is meant to overwhelm these Colossian believers. And it should overwhelm us as well. They were being deceived by those errors that were coming into the false teachers. And he's saying, don't be deceived. What they're holding out to you cannot hold a candle to what Christ has already given you. Look to Christ. He is the one who reconciled your account. He is the one who will sustain you to the very end. It won't be through your works, through your effort. It's only in Christ that we will persevere. Now go back to Colossians 1, 22. Here in verse 22, Paul, Paul goes beyond the how of how we are reconciled in verse 22a to why we are reconciled in 22b. Let's look at it. In verse 22b, we learn why our reconciliation was graciously granted to us. It says this, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Now he's speaking of God the Father. So here's, here's why we are reconciled. Here's, here's why we are brought into a right relation with God now in Christ. So that we would be presented to God the Father, that's what he's speaking of, as holy, as beloved, right? As, as those who have been actually considered blameless and above reproach in Christ. This is why we are reconciled. This is to magnify the supremacy of Christ's atoning work. That's why he does this. This is the reason for our reconciliation. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. Christ reconciled us so that we could now and for eternity magnify the greatness of His work. We could magnify the supremacy of His reconciling grace that we've received through His work, not our own. Just think about what He's done. He's taken our place. He's atoned for us. And He's given us the blessing of having His standing before a holy and righteous God. This is an amazing gift to us. But it's not given just to puff us up. It's not given just to make us feel at ease. It's given to give us a desire to praise Him with the life we've been given. The life that's been imputed to us by His grace. Saints, He tells us why we have been reconciled here. And I think we should always be amazed by this. Do you realize that you are a trophy of God's grace? You will stand before God for all eternity declaring the finished work of Christ was more than sufficient to keep you there, to bring you there, to keep you there, and to glorify His name forever. Think about how this was accomplished again. God the Son took on flesh. He became like us yet without sin. 
In every way, he was like us, yet without sin. And he came and he lived the righteous life that we are required by God the Father to live. He lived that life for us. And then he chose to die in our place. But he tells us here, here's why he did it. In order to present you as a trophy of his reconciling power. To present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Before who? Before God, our holy king and judge. It's an interesting term that he uses, that Paul uses here, the term present. It's a secular term that was used quite often at that time to to describe what it meant to be summoned before a king or a judge. It's also the the Old Testament terminology that's used to describe the, the ceremony of presenting someone to a priest and to God to give evidence that they have been made ceremonially clean. Paul's incorporating that idea into this. He's saying, look at the work Jesus did. He's done this to bring you before the God of all the earth and say, look what my blood has accomplished. I can take wretched sinners and make them into trophies of grace. Not because of what they do, not because of what they will do, but because of what I have done. Verse 22, Paul's pointing out that this is the only way we can stand before a holy and righteous judge. We can only stand before our God, our Creator, our Sustainer, our mighty King. We can only stand before Him with confidence by faith in what Christ has accomplished. Nothing that we do will get us there. Nothing that we do will keep us from going there either if we're in Christ. Nothing we do or don't do as sinners can make us what He makes us by His grace here. You can't undo your own sin. It is a stain upon your soul until God wipes it away by the blood of Christ. Only Christ can make us holy, blameless, and above reproach. It's easy to put on a front. It's easy to pretend like you're righteous when no one can see what's in your heart. But he's saying, no, I'm going to make sure that, that what is really true about you because of my reconciling power is made evident to my Father. He places us under God's heart-penetrating gaze, before God, before Him. And listen, apart from, from Christ's atoning work, His reconciliation, we could never face the day that we stand before God with confidence or joy. We were, we were defiled from the inside out. Our best deeds, our good deeds, are nothing but filthy rags in God's sight. And apart from Christ's atoning grace... We would be consumed in God's sight. But if we are in Christ, we will not be consumed in the presence of God Almighty. We will be embraced. That's what he's pointing out to them. He's saying, look, the supremacy of Christ's reconciliation is so much greater than anything a man can come up with to think that you can make yourself right with God. Jesus has already completed the work. Sanctification and salvation are a work of God's sovereign grace. Christ has achieved it for us. Christ has granted it to us. And Paul's point here in verse 22, I think, is is both to, to correct those in error and encourage the weary saints that are among them. He wants even us, I think, as we read this, to know that our salvation is not granted by a human process and neither is sanctification. It is all of grace. Based on the reconciling power of Christ's atonement. 
These gifts of salvation and sanctification can only be granted to us by God's sovereign and omnipotent grace through faith in what Christ has already accomplished in our place. That's why I think Paul tells us something very interesting as you go further into verse 22b. He goes into these these intricate details, if you will, by, by stating these three positions that we now have before God. He tells us in detail just what Christ's work has accomplished. And he's saying this to astound them because they have thought through what they have been taught by the false teachers, the only way I can be set apart unto God and away from sin is to follow their rituals and rules and regulations. The only way that I can actually be blameless in God's sight is if I have to live this life according to their terms and according to their laws. But I know my heart, I still fall short. There's no way that I can stand before God trusting even in their commands and live as I'm above reproach. I need something greater than this. And so he says, look at what Christ's work has accomplished in your place for your good and the glory of God. Look at what Christ's work grants us here in verse 22. And I think that you should absolutely be amazed as we look at these phrases. He's telling us here that those who trust in Christ and Christ's work alone... They are now, and he's he's speaking of a present condition with ongoing effect. They are now declared to be positionally holy before God in Christ. Meaning, you are positionally set apart in Christ's righteous life by God's grace. The term holy is something we're familiar with, I hope. It simply means to be separated from sin and set apart to God to serve Him. And Paul's saying, this is now possible in only one way. It's by faith in Christ's accomplishments. And he says, by faith in Christ, this is now your new position before God. Because Christ has already reconciled your sin debt for you. And, and, and not only that, He has also came to live the life that you couldn't live for you. He, he reconciled our sin debt at the cross, but He lived the righteous life we're commanded to live here on earth. Christ's holy life and His obedience is now credited to our account by faith, by trusting in what God has provided for us to make us separated from sin and set apart to God for eternity. He, he's making it very clear to them, and I hope it's clear to us and to those you, you minister to, that our new position is not a result of anything that we do in and of ourselves. It's not a result of our works. It's only a work of Christ that's being accomplished in us if we do anything righteous. It is His life that's at work in our lives when we do that. He did what we could never do to give us what we don't deserve. His righteousness. Look at Romans 8 with me. In Romans 8, I think we see something very important as it relates to that reality. Romans 8, 1. We have a new position before God. We are positionally holy in His sight because we have died with Christ and we've been raised to newness of life. And it's life, the life of Christ that now reigns in us. And because of that, our life has been transformed for eternity before God's sight. And that's why he says in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Him, trusting in Him, placed with Him at the cross, died with Him at the cross. Their sins were granted, put upon Him, credited to Jesus, and His righteous life was credited to our account. 
He says, here's here's what happened. This is why there's no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. And here's why. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You hear what that's saying in verse four? Because of what Jesus did, there is therefore now no condemnation because he came and he obeyed the requirements of the law in our place. He fulfilled it in our stead. And we are now forever united to him in his life. And the only way that God sees us now is in the righteous work of Christ. We, we are covered by His blood, covered by His perfection. Jesus did for us what we cannot do on our own here because we are sinners. But He came to live the life that sinners were required to live, to give that life as a ransom for us, to make us acceptable and holy in God's sight. Now, when, when I go through Colossians and we talk about how Important it is to see that it's the reconciling power of Christ's work that actually saves and sanctifies us. That doesn't mean that sanctification is not something that, that we shouldn't pursue. But you need to understand something. Your sanctification isn't built on your strength and your ability to gut it out. It's the truth that we see here that is actually at work in us who have been declared positionally holy before God. The reality of what these texts say to us is what really is what's cultivating this longing you have for practical holiness in your life. And when you do long for this, when you long to be holy, I mean, as a Christian, I, I hope that we long to be holy practically. It is a position that we have before God because of Christ, but it's, it's a position that leads to transformation. But that longing that we have that longing didn't spawn from something you have done on your own. It didn't spawn from being actually this super Christian and thinking, now I'm being holy because I keep all the commands and I follow all the rules. No, this, this desire to even pursue holiness is because of Christ's righteousness that is in you, that's been imputed to you. And the desire itself testifies to the supremacy of Christ's work. It not only saves us, but it gives us the longing to magnify His saving work through our own lives and our pursuits. The reality of what God has given us is what drives us as Christians. Now, in 122b, Paul goes on to say that all those who trust in Christ's reconciliation are now not simply declared to be positionally holy before God, but they are pronounced to be legally blameless before God. Why? Because we have been justified in Christ's death. It is His death that brought us justification. Through his death and his resurrection, we are justified in God's sight. But here in particular, he's talking about being legally blameless before God, being pronounced as such because Christ has paid our penalty. That's why there is no blame laid upon us any longer, because, saints, we still sin. But you are blameless in God's sight. Now, does, that, does that cause you to want to continue to sin? Or does that make you want to abstain from sin even more? I would think we want to keep ourselves back from it because this is our legal standing in God's sight. He doesn't see our, our, our sins as against us any longer. We are blameless in His sight. I remember when I was growing up and I was raised in a very Arminian background. 
And every night before I would go to bed, I would plead with God. I was not saved, but I would plead with God because I believed there was a God. I would plead with him not to let me die in my sleep because I knew the blame. It was on my heart. I knew the guilt within me. I knew I'd be condemned by my sins. And I worked hard at trying to overcome my own guilty feelings by trying to be a good Christian, doing all the things I was told to do. But I still didn't have any assurance when I laid my head at night that I would be blameless in his sight if I died. But saints, this is what he's telling us here. If Christ has taken your place, you are now legally blameless before a holy and righteous God. If he, if he paid your sin debt in full, and you believe that, and he satisfied God's justice with that, then he's saying we are now and forever will be blameless. It means without a spot or blemish that will be displeasing to God, will be that way forever. You should rejoice if you believe that. You should be amazed if you believe that. Because if you believe that, it's because God has reconciled you to himself. If you can rest in that, you must have an amazing gift given to you. It's the gift of faith. And I think it's important for us to think about this, this condition of blamelessness. Because I don't think we live blameless lives as Christians. We should, but we don't. And so I find this statement here in this part of the text very encouraging to me. Because I'm not blameless. Are you? I mean, today, would there be things that you've done or thought that would be considered sin? I'm sure there are. And sometimes because I I still struggle with indwelling sin, as you do, I I will feel at times that, that I am unworthy to call myself a Christian, a follower of Christ. But I think this this work of God that he's that he's given to us here, I think this is given as a comfort to us. We should take courage in this statement that this is what Christ accomplished. He has made you blameless in God's sight. We should take great courage in that tonight. Because verse 22 goes on to declare that no matter, no matter what we feel or what we are accused of by others, it doesn't change God's declaration. God the judge has already pronounced us to be holy and blameless in Christ. My feelings don't matter. The fact remains, Jesus took on flesh to pay my debt, and I am now set free in Him from blame. Does that make me want to go out and continue to sin? Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. It is hard to entertain sin when we are standing at the foot of the cross and contemplating Christ. This is God's gift of salvation that leads to sanctification. It's this truth that says, look, you are legally blameless. Therefore, you will desire to live a blameless life because Christ has already pronounced it over you. It's yours in Christ. And here's why, why we can have this pronouncement. Jesus has already bore our blame for us. Jesus carried our sins to the cross and our shame And our filth was laid upon Him. He bore our blame. And He did that willingly. So that we could be legally justified in God's sight. God would be legally just in declaring us righteous in His sight because of Jesus' full payment for our sins. And it's not just that He did that in the past. There's an ongoing power in the reconciliation of Christ's blood. It keeps us blameless before Him forever. 
because it was a legal work that God accomplished through the work of his son. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17 to see that really more clearly. 5.17 down to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. It's the work of God through Christ's work that brought us into union with him. Reconciled brought peace to us. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's why. For our sake, God the Father made God the Son, made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is how God sees us now. What a glorious truth. We are new creations, perennially new, forever new in Christ, blameless in his sight, because the stain of our sin was laid on him. And he he took that upon himself so that his righteous life would be laid upon us, credited to our account. That's why we stand blameless in God's presence today. We stand blameless in God's presence because we are covered by Christ's sanctifying blood. That's why you have no fear of condemnation. And listen, when you understand this, when we grasp this, this condition that we now have in Christ's justification, in his death upon the cross, I think this will be the revelation that actually it it fuels the the engine of sanctification in your life. We, we, We pursue this, though, presently to magnify what Christ has already secured for us for eternity. We don't pursue sanctification to sanctify ourselves. We pursue it because we've already been set apart in Christ. Blameless. Sanctification is to be joy-driven. Thanks-driven. Not works-driven. It's not a process that we do. God does the work in us. And it's magnified through us. Out of gratefulness. Because He counted us as holy and blameless in Christ. This is our standing before God. Think about this, because when Paul, or when Paul writes here in Colossians 1, and he, he says, before him, he's talking about on the last day. We're going to stand before God on the great eschaton, the, the culmination of all things, right? The end. He says, when you stand before this God, he's not going to be your judge any longer. He's your reconciler. That, that should make you rejoice. He's already judged you in Christ. He's already granted you Christ's righteousness. You now are holy and blameless in His sight. That day is a day of joy for us. We should rejoice in it now, though. It's something we're going to rejoice in for eternity. Lastly, the last phrase he uses here in 22b speaks of those who trust in Christ's atoning work as being now guaranteed to be eternally above reproach before God in Christ. How does that happen? Well, we are not only in Christ's life set apart. We're not only in Christ's death set apart. We are in Christ's resurrection set apart. The final phrase here should should extend great joy, eternal hope to us as Christians, because it points to the power of Christ's resurrection that is at work in us who believe. Look at Colossians 2. Go back there. Colossians 2, 11 to 14. We'll read the whole thing. 
In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ was 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 cut off because of our sins. But he he came back from the grave alive, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Then he goes on to say he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ's resurrection didn't just affect the, the apostles on that first day. It affected all of creation, all of the angels and demons. They saw the power of Christ's life as he came forth from the grave to declare that my work has been completed and is acceptable in God's sight on behalf of those I came to save. We are now above reproach before God because of this. Think about what he's saying here in verse 22 altogether. Paul's saying that not only are we holy and blameless in God's sight through Christ's reconciling work, he's saying we are above reproach. It's kind of a strange phrase. It's, it's a phrase we're not accustomed to using. It, it means we are impossible to ever accuse again in Christ. We are now above reproach in Christ's resurrected and triumphant life. It means that through faith in Christ's finished work, we are now and we will forever be blameless, guiltless in God's sight. Above reproach. Nothing can ever accuse us any longer because Christ took our guilt for us. You realize this is a phenomenal thing for us to, to meditate on. He's saying it's now impossible for us to ever be charged again for our sins. No charge against you will ever be able to stick because that charge fell on Christ in your stead. Christ has already in your stead not only taken that charge, He's already paid the full penalty for that charge at the cross. And then He rose up from the grave victorious to declare that His work was fully accepted by God in our place. So now he's saying we stand before God as guiltless as Christ because we've been washed clean by his sacrifice. His sacrifice has covered our sins. Listen, the the guarantee of our forgiveness and our sanctification is written in Christ's blood. It's written in the blood of Christ. And that, my friends, is what makes us, I think, as Christians want to live a life that reflects the gift we've been given, a life that is above reproach. That's what fuels our sanctification. Now, lastly, I want to look really closely at the last two words, even though I've already read them, mentioned them to you numerous times. Let's look at the last two words in verse 22, because I think that Paul here is is just wanting to make sure he's clear to all who read this that, that he's talking about on the last day, everyone who believes in Christ will stand there with great joy before God's judgment throne because Christ has already been judged in our place. But he also wants to make it clear that if you're not in Christ, this reconciling Savior that we now rejoice in, he's going to be your judge. 
on, on the day that you stand before God, you better be standing there in Christ, trusting in his work, not your own, not some process to make you a better person. Only Christ can change your condition. But look what it says in the last two words really carefully. I, I think they'll encourage you. Just a, a, a word study here for a moment. The, the English word here that's used before and then the word, of course, him, um, before it comes from a Greek term called kata and apion. Kata and apion. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Apion, optic, right? Kata and apion. That's what it means in the Greek. And him is referring to God the Father. But, but look at the phrase kata and apion, before. Let's focus on that for just a minute. Here's what this means. It's just really a really neat study to look at this phrase in connection with what God is telling us through the Apostle Paul here about where we're going to stand on the last day. And brothers and sisters, we better be standing in Christ or this would be a frightening day. Kata means touching down. And anapion means in the eye. When you put those together, he's saying that on the last day, we will be pressed down into the very eye of God himself. He's referring to the concentrated gaze of God Almighty. His judicial gaze. Will he look at us and see us trying to sanctify ourselves, save ourselves? Or will he look at us and see the finished and completed work of Christ that has been imputed to us? Verse 22 should just amaze us when we see that little phrase at the end. He's telling us, look... Christ reconciled you so that you can stand on that day without any fear. He he, he wants you to know that Christ reconciled us so that you can have the concentrated eye of God looking down on you and He would not be angry. No, when He sees us now, He sees the work of His Son. And He has pleasure in that. And He's telling us, as Christians, we can stand on that day and feel the pleasure of God and no condemnation. But for the unbeliever, that's not the case. On that day, that gaze will bring God's holy judgment and wrath onto unbelievers. Their good deeds, their religious works, their self-righteousness will not shield them from his gaze. But for the Christian, for the one who's trusted in Christ and his reconciling work, when, when God's gaze falls upon us, we will rejoice. And we'll rejoice because his gaze will reveal the supremacy of Christ's sin-conquering power that's been granted to us. Saints, on, on that day, I, I think this is what I want to get across in this message. On that, on that day, here's what's going to happen for the saint, for those who are in Christ. On that day, our reconciliation and peace with God will be on full display. And... and Sometimes when we think about the day, we we want to give homage to God. We have awe before God. We bow before God. Yes, all those things are true. But we don't fear God because He's going to condemn us when we stand before Him on that day. We don't just get into heaven by the skin of our teeth and hope that maybe He won't focus His eye upon me. No, we will stand there because of Christ. Does that amaze you? Does it change the way you live your life? God is pleased at the work of Christ in you. He's pleased with His Son's accomplishment. We aren't merely entering into His presence with trembling and fear that He might see us. No, we come in with full confidence. 
Paul isn't referring to being tolerated under God's holy and almighty gaze. He's telling us that believers in Christ will not just be tolerated in God's sight. Not at all. He's telling us in verse 22 that all those who trust in Christ and His accomplishment, they'll be fully cloaked in Christ's righteous, blood-soaked robe. And we'll be declared, when God looks into our hearts and sees our lives, we'll be declared to be holy, blameless, and irreproachable in His sight because our lives are hidden in Christ. And this is astonishing. Look what it says in chapter 3 of Colossians 1-3. to And then if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, fix your minds on things that are above. The truths that we've just learned in this book, he's saying... Not on the things of the earth, not on carnal things. Here's why. For, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. It's interesting that He gives um, an indicative, then He gives some imperatives. See, the, the imperatives come out of the indicative. The commands flow out of the joy of what's been promised, what we already have in Christ. This is astounding. Just think about what Paul's trying to do here. He's trying to, to make sure that these saints and that we ourselves understand and rejoice in the fact that by God's sovereign grace, through faith in Christ alone, the unholy are going to be declared holy because Christ, the Holy One, became sin for us. The guilty are going to be pronounced guiltless. Because Christ received our punishment. The unrighteous are going to be guaranteed righteousness because Christ's life is credited to our account. Saints, God will not just merely tolerate us in His holy presence. Not at all. He will fully embrace us in Christ. He'll fully embrace us. He he will fully embrace us because we are His legally adopted Blood-bought children. We are, not only that, we are even set apart, not only on earth, but for eternity, to be a testimony of God's redeeming work in His Son. We are set apart to magnify the supremacy of Christ's reconciling work, beginning at conversion, and will continue to do so throughout eternity in glorification. Now, when you think about what Paul is doing here, he's, he's overwhelming the saints in this text. These saints were being drawn away by some false teachers who said, to be all these things, you've got to follow their rules. And, and even their false teachers didn't follow their own rules. They couldn't. And, and so he's saying, look, are, are there any religious rites or, or human works that can give you the kind of reception you're going to get from God on the last day, like the work of Christ? Do they compare? I mean... Anything we do that thinks that, that we think that can actually bring us righteousness, that can make us pleasing in God's sight, we still have a doubt. Did I do it well enough? Did I do it completely? Did I do it consistently? And when we enter His presence, we would be trembling at the thought of we are still probably blameful. We're still not above reproach. We're still unholy. But He's saying, look, if you're still doubting this, but I want you to have no doubt whatsoever. I want you to understand, you contribute nothing to this great reconciliation. It's all due to God's grace. But I also want you to recognize that because you have been given this grace, you should have comfort and confidence to stand 
and continue on in the faith. Don't be dissuaded by false teachers. Don't be dissuaded by your own thoughts, your own feelings, by the accusation of Satan. Understand that even even though he's saying this to them, he's not letting them off the hook as far as sanctification goes. Because that's what chapter 3 ends up going into great detail about. What he's saying is you can't do anything to obtain or sustain your, your reconciliation or even your sanctification. But you should respond to what God has done for you in Christ to grant it. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we respond to God's reconciling work in Christ in some form or fashion? I mean, we're going to respond to it for eternity in glory around the throne of God, praising Him for His saving and sanctifying work. So I think we should do that here on earth as well. We should want to magnify Him because that's what we're being presented to God to do on the last day. Magnify Christ's reconciling work in our lives presently. Out of the joy of knowing that our reconciler has already declared us to be these things by His work. That's why we now seek personally and practically to magnify what we are positionally before God's sight. We want to magnify the great worth of Jesus' work, not just in heaven, but here on earth. I think the Apostle Paul himself is a testimony of that. Look on down in chapter 1, verse 24. He is a one who, knowing that he's been reconciled by this great Savior, wants to give his entire life to magnifying that Savior's work. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And he says this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this ministry, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then he says, here's what this hope does to me. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He says it in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all, wait, his energy. Wait a minute. He's toiling, but who's doing the work? Christ in him. This is Christ's work working through him. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Saints, Paul's labor is the fruit of Christ's work. Paul's labor here is fueled by this soul-saving, life-transforming, sanctifying work of Christ. And Paul is not the exception. This is our promise to us as Christians, those who are in Christ. We can have this same power at work in us that's causing us to go out and proclaim His name with great joy if we are in Christ. If we've looked to Him for our salvation, this is our hope. It's that same hope that we have that tells us that if we are in Christ and we meditate on this, He's going to progressively sanctify, set us apart positionally and practically throughout our life for the sake of His name. Jesus has done this in order to present us before God as a trophy of His grace, a testimony to the power of His reconciling work. We should want to live for the glory of that great 
God who saved us by taking on flesh to be our substitute. So let's pray and give thanks to him tonight and just ask the Lord to uh, strengthen our convictions and direct our hearts to rejoice in the truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are a great reconciler. You have sent forth your Son to reconcile those who could never be reconciled apart from your grace. I pray, God, that you would help us to see the greatness of Christ's work and that that revelation that we see in the Word would transform our hearts and our actions here on earth so that on the last day, we'll just be continuing to praise you for the work that you have done at the beginning of our conversion, throughout our sanctification and on into glorification. It is to you that we pray and to you that we give thanks for this. In Jesus' name, amen.